Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 37, we're going to be starting basically halfway through the chapter in verse 12. And verses 1 through 11, where we were at last time that we met, we were looking at the introduction of Joseph, one of the youngest sons of Jacob. And Joseph and his his reputation within the family. You remember dad's got Joseph as his favorite because Joseph was born to his favorite wife. And Joseph, a dreamer, he's had some dreams. His brothers didn't like those dreams. Dad didn't like the, the second one, at least. And uh, so it created some friction, and Dad gave him a a robe, a a robe of many colors or long sleeves, depending on the translation that you have. Some fancy robe, some robe that would be appropriate maybe for somebody that's royalty. And here Dad's giving that to Joseph, the second youngest son in the family. So that's where we've gotten so far, just kind of introduced to the family dynamics that were going on there. We're going to be resuming them with verse 12. Somebody mind reading verse 12? Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. Excellent. Thank you. So it sounds like Joseph staying home. Sounds like it's dad, Joseph, probably baby Benjamin is there as well. So that would leave 10 of the brothers, 10 brothers feeding their flocks, uh, their father's flock in Shechem. Wait a minute, Shechem? Do you remember Shechem? Do you remember anything that happened in Shechem? What was the last thing that we remember happening in Shechem? Didn't they destroy the other family for what they did to their sister? Exactly right. Exactly right. In Shechem, Shechem is the name of that town or village where Simeon and Levi, birth order son number two and son number three, killed the entire town because of what the town had done or what one of the guys in the town had done to Dinah, their sister. That guy, Hamor, and Shechem, father and son over there in that place that bore the same name of Shechem, the son had his way with Dinah, and the brothers don't like it, and they annihilate the town. They slaughter the people in the town. And you remember after that episode, we have Jacob saying, you've made me a stench in the nostrils of these people. They could just as well gang up on us and kill us. He's concerned about their safety, and they end up having to move away. They move away from Shechem. We get a little bit of a glimpse, though, that God provided a protection on them. But we don't know that Jacob knew that, <laughs> I mean, because they moved away. But here... The sons are back. These ten sons have gone back to Shechem. You would think that's a dangerous place. Uh, Can't you find someplace else to pasture the sheep? This is a long ways away, by the way, of of where they're at. We're going to find out that uh, in verse 14 that Dad and Joseph and baby Benjamin, in all likelihood, they're in Hebron. Shechem is 50 miles away. That's a long way to be pasturing your sheep, but that's where they've chosen to go. So apparently it was a pretty fertile place, probably pretty well watered and good pasture for the sheep anyway. Verse 13, somebody mind reading that one? And uh, Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. 
Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Here he's referred to as Israel. Jacob is the same guy as Israel. You remember God changed his name. It's nice to see that it's more consistently um, being used as Israel instead of the old name of Jacob, the deceiver. And so here dad is saying to his son, Joseph, I'm going to send you to your brothers up in Shechem. So dad knows where they're at. I'm going to send you to your brothers in Shechem. And what is Joseph's response there? He says, here I am, or here am I, or Hanene. Hanene is a, it's a very common phrase. It's translated here as here am I. Uh, But it basically means I submit to you, or I'm going to do what you're going to ask of me, or I'm listening, go ahead and speak. It's the same phrase that's actually used of Abraham when God calls him to sacrifice his son. When God introduces that conversation, he says to him, Abraham. And Abraham says, Hanene, I'm listening. What is it you want to say to me? It's also the same phrase that comes up when God calls, when the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham, when Abraham's got the knife above his son. And God calls him and he says, Hinene, he says, here I am, I'm listening. I submit to you, what would you have me to do? It's the same call that is made to Isaiah. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, where the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. It's Isaiah responding, Hinene, here I am, or here am I. There's a gal in our church. She's probably college age, and she has a tattoo on her arm. And I'm not big on tattoos. I don't really like tattoos. But I could tell that the tattoo on her arm was in Hebrew. So that kind of threw me for a loop. And I had to ask her. I had to say, what is it that that says on your arm? And she says, oh, it's an obscure phrase from the Old Testament that I really like that really means something in my life. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, basically saying for the whole world to see I'm yielded to God. Uh, What would you have me to do, God? Uh, Send me, you know, that type of attitude. Verse 14, somebody might read in verse 14. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. (laughs) Here we have Dad is saying to his son, Dad is saying to Joseph, Please go and see if it is well. That word for well right there, see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks. That same word there, well with your brothers, well with your flocks. The word is shalom. We've talked about that before, and the very latest time that we've seen Shalom was, if you remember in this very chapter, how the brothers could not speak Shalom to Joseph. They're so mad at this guy, they can't even say peace peace be to you, (laughs) to their own brother. And it was expected that's the greeting you would give to anybody. Even a stranger, you would give that to them. Shalom. They couldn't even speak Shalom to their brother. And so dad's saying, hey, I want you to go make sure there's shalom up there. (laughs) Um, Does dad not realize the tension that there is? I don't know. Maybe not. But uh, it's the same word that's being used there. Like I said, Hebron and Shechem. Here's the mention of Hebron where he's leaving, Shechem where he's going to. And we've got a 50-mile journey that his son Joseph is going to be sent on. Verse 15. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying... What are you seeking? Can you imagine this? All right, so the man, we don't know if he lives there. We don't know if he's he's just a vagabond or a passerby. Uh, but apparently he's there long enough to see Joseph wandering around the fields. All right? So you can imagine seeing this kid. Well, I saw him an hour ago. He was wandering around that field, and now he's wandering around this field. And, uh, you know, it looks like he's looking for somebody. So he finally goes up. Offers assistance. Uh, what is it that you're looking for? Who are you seeking? Uh, verse 16. Somebody mind reading that one. He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. 
Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Excellent. Thank you. So it sounds like maybe he's getting tired. <laughs> maybe there's some exhaustion. Maybe there's some desperation. He's come 50 miles and his brothers aren't there. His dad's flocks aren't there. And we know that his dad had quite a number of animals. And uh, he can't seem to find them. So, yeah, he's willing to ask this stranger about uh, the circumstances surrounding where his brothers might be. Fortunately, it sounds like the stranger knows where they went. Verse 17, somebody mind reading that. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here we have a situation where the brothers and the flocks, they're now moved another 13 miles. So poor Joseph, he's come 50 already, his brothers are gone, the flocks are gone, and he's not yet done with his journey. He's got to go 13 more miles. And uh, Dothan or Dothan, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, uh, but it looks like it's about 65 miles away from where he originally started from, which was Hebron. Dothan or Dothan, this is only one of two places in the entire Bible where this place is mentioned. It's only mentioned in one other place, and that's in 2 Kings chapter 6. And the story there is pretty interesting. The story there, you have Elisha, all right? You had Elijah, great prophet, you know, a lot going on with him. And then you have Elisha, the guy that comes after him. And Elisha gets a double blessing, double the number of miracles, all right, double the power, that kind of thing. So Elisha is in Dothan. And there's a king, and he's saying, how is it that every time we go to try to do something against that other king, the other king seems to know what we're about to do? And somebody says, well, it's Elisha. He knows from God what you're about to do, and he tells that king. And he goes, all right, go get this guy. All right, so that king sends an army to go get Elisha the prophet. All right, and this army arrives at night, and it says he sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they surround the place of Dothan. All right, and then the next morning, Elisha's servant gets up in the morning. I'm kind of sore from sleeping on the ground, but okay, I'm going to go, you know, open the door, open the window, whatever. He looks out and he sees, oh dear, we're surrounded by an army. And he tells his master, 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 (laughs) you got to take note of what's going on here. Look, we're surrounded. And Elisha seems pretty calm in the whole thing. And he's basically saying, don't worry about it. The ones that are fighting for us are greater than the ones fighting for them. And the, and the servant's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. So Elisha says, okay, dear Lord, please open his eyes so that he can see. And the Lord opens his eyes to see chariots and a fire surrounding the army that's surrounding them. A multitude to fight for them. On behalf of God, God's sending this great army. It says, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. God opens his eyes. Sometimes God sends a powerful army just to surround us, and we don't even see God's protection. We just go through life and we think, oh, I'm afraid of that thing over there, or I'm afraid of what could happen to me, or I'm afraid of this army surrounding me, or these people that treat me bad. Meanwhile, our eyes are closed or we're blinded to the army of the Lord that's surrounding us and ready to take on whatever would come against us. I think that's cool. I love that. Verse 18. Somebody might read in verse 18. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Excellent. Thanks, Sherry. How did they see him afar off? Probably something moving, coming up over the hill. That would be easy enough, I suppose. There's probably something else that adds to their ability to see him far away. He's got that colorful coat on. 
No. <laughs> you know, and that probably helps you to distinguish. Is that just somebody walking by? No, there's only one person with that stinking colorful coat that I know. Of. So here he comes. They probably see his coat, uh, and they conspire against him. That word for conspired, or in some places it's translated as plotted. It appears only four times in the Bible. Uh, one of those times that it appears is in Malachi chapter one verse fourteen. I think it's kind of cool to read that. Malachi one fourteen says this: "But cursed be the swindler." That word for swindler in that translation is the same word that we have here for conspiring. All right, so what the brothers are conspiring to do: "Cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king," says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. What is what what what's going on? The people were to bring their sacrifice to the Lord, and it was supposed to be the best, not the leftovers, not the lame. You, you didn't go over your flock and say, "Hmm, which one looks like it's going to die tomorrow?" That's the one I'm going to give to the Lord. All right, that's not the way it was supposed to operate. All right, and Malachi is blasting the people at that time because that's basically what they're doing. That expresses an attitude that, you know what? God can have my leftovers. I don't need to give God what's best in my life. And Malachi is blasting them because God would say, really? You're going to give me the leftovers? That's what I deserve? Would your governor be happy with that present if you were to bring him a lame goat, blind in one eye, missing an ear, can't walk on this leg because somebody stepped on it? You're going to give that to your governor? Is he going to be happy about it? So what I've got here, and it's on your seat of application, I put this down. We're no better than these conspiring brothers. We're no better than these conspiring brothers when we give God anything less than our best. When we give God anything, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as the next person, where there's this tendency in my heart. You know, and somebody would say, hey, you know, we got this special project or whatever, and we're looking for people to give. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I can afford it. I'm not sure if I want to, you know. Yeah, it's God's work. I'll readily give you that. But, you know, and I get stingy. I feel that stinginess in my heart. I feel like the pocket that's holding my wallet gets tighter, you know, <laughs> like it seals up. Like, don't pull my wallet out, you know. And I get this stingy heart. And all of a sudden I realize, really, I'm, I'm so concerned about whether, whether or not I'm going to give God a little bit of a leftover. Do I have something left over to give to God? When God would say, really, is that, how, is that how it is with us? Is that my relationship with you? That you're looking just to see if you have leftovers to give me? I've heard a story, it was is deplorable, where they were accepting donations to take overseas. Uh, and it was like for missionaries over in, in another place overseas. And somebody donated used tea bags. As if that was, as if there wasn't something really wrong with that. They donated used tea bags to be taken to the missionaries overseas. It was just sad. It, isn't that? Ugh. So we're no better than these conspiring brothers when we give God anything less than our best. Genesis chapter 37, verse 19. Somebody might reading verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Here comes that dreamer. The Hebrew actually can be translated as that master of dreams. Oh, can you hear the sarcasm in that? Here comes that master of dreams coming up over the hill wearing that colorful coat. All right. Uh, notice, though, that it's not here comes daddy's here comes that daddy's boy or here comes that tattler. You know, those were things that they found objectionable. Here comes that guy in his colorful coat. They could have said that, too. But it's his dreams, apparently, that made them most upset. Surely those things could be added to the list. But it seems to be the dreams that they're most upset with. So here comes that dreamer. Here comes that master of dreams. Which is interesting because this does become an appropriate title for him in the coming chapters. 
In chapters 40 and 41, he is blessed by God and be, and he emerges as a master of dreams. All right, so this scornful title that they put on him, God's actually able to make something out of that. He becomes a master interpreter of dreams by God's help, of course. Verse 20, somebody mind reading verse 20. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. So so let me get this right. <laughs> so the ten brothers see him coming, and they decide they're going to kill him. All right, I remember when I was a kid, and we'd ride in, in the car, and my parents in the front seat, my sister and I in the back seat. And the, inevitably, there was there would be something we would argue about, or there would be some tension, and there would be this whack, whack. You know, there'd be some hitting. You know, and you're doing this, you're trying to time it when Dad's not looking in the mirror, and when Dad's not turning around, hey, knock it off back there. You know, that kind of thing. And so we would hit each other, right? We would mistreat each other when our parents weren't looking by hitting each other. I never once though thought I'm, I want to kill my sister when my dad's not looking, because here Dad's not looking, right? Here comes brother. And I would, I would probably understand it if they said, hey, let's beat him up bad. All right? But they want to kill him. They're ready to kill him. Do you remember last time that we got together, we were looking at a few different places where we had some hints of the Cain and Abel story. In this chapter, in verse 3, we talked about favoritism. And we ended up talking about different examples of people, you know, and favoritism going on in the families. And then we got to Cain and Abel, and it seemed like Cain had an issue with, well, Abel, you know, favoritism, God, blah. And there was that possible dynamic that was going on there that was kind of a hint of the Cain and Abel story coming up in chapter 37. And then in chapter 37, verse 4, we had the mention of the brothers. Who were the first two brothers? Cain and Abel, another hint. Then we have in chapter 37, verse 7, where Joseph is interpreting the dream, and he says, I had this dream, and my sheaf rose up, and yours all bowed down. And the last, the first time that we saw that word arise was when Cain arose to kill his brother. We had these hints of the Cain and Abel story. And we all know how the Cain and Abel story turned out. Cain kills Abel. And it was almost like those hints were like, oh boy, I hope this story doesn't turn out like that. And here we are in verse 20. They're right there. The brothers are ready to kill him. There's not even an intermediate stage where they just want to hurt him really bad. They're going straight to killing. They want to kill him and cast him into some pit. The pits back then were basically shaped like a bottle. And there was an opening at the top that was big enough for a person. And then there was a short shaft, and then it would open up bigger down below that. And you would lower your bucket down through the top part, down through the neck of the shaft or this pit or the cistern, and then your bucket would go down to where the pool of water was. In this case, we're going to find out that the pit is dry, and they want to throw his body in there. All right. So they're looking forward to not just killing him, but concealing the body. And they've already got a plan, it looks like, because it says here, And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what becomes of his dreams. You know what? If God is supporting you, if you're in God's will, God's going to be able to make those dreams come to pass, whether or not your brothers have plans to the contrary. That word for cast him into some pit, we're going to see that word several times here in verse 20 and then also in in other verses coming up. It's the word that was usually used for casting a dead body somewhere. All right, uh, of taking a dead body and, and th- disposing of it. All right, so that, that word carries additional uh, weight that this is, this is going to be a killing. Verse 21, somebody might read that one. So Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Reuben? What birth order is Reuben? Do you remember? He was the firstborn. So here, Reuben, the firstborn, 
says, hey guys, let's not kill him. Does he say why? He doesn't say why. For some reason, Reuben decides, hey, let's not kill Joseph. And then in verse 22, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. And then we're told that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. The firstborn son is now stepping up and saying, Hey, let's not kill him, but he's keeping back a little secret. And the secret is he intends to rescue Joseph and restore Joseph to dad. What's been Reuben's status in the family lately? It's not good. He's been the firstborn, and he wasn't a participant in the uh, destruction of Shechem. That was the secondborn and the thirdborn. That was Simeon and Levi. But you remember with Reuben, Reuben slept with Bilhah. Remember that? With dad's handmaiden. All right. Rachel's handmaiden was Bilhah, and Reuben slept with her. And dad found out, and he was furious. And we don't have any indication that he ever did anything about it. Perhaps Reuben is trying to get back into good graces with Dad. As a firstborn, you're supposed to be responsible for the younger kids in the family. So there is that responsibility that he would bear. And so if Joseph turns out to die on this journey going to check on the brothers, Reuben's going to bear the responsibility a little more than the other brothers because he is the oldest. That would naturally go along with being the firstborn. Um, But then there's also this, he's got some ground to make up with Dad. All right, so perhaps he's trying to look for a way to get back in dad's good graces because maybe in his mind, if dad dies and I'm still not in good standing with him, I could be out of the will. (laughs) All right, I'm going to miss out on on the double blessing because the firstborn generally could look forward to a double portion of what everybody else would get. Verse 23, somebody mind reading verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic the tunic of many colors that was on him. Mm, so, yep, he wore the robe. He wore the tunic. <laughs> Victor B. Hamilton says, for him to choose to wear this on this journey going to Dothan is like waving a red flag in front of a bull. All right? <laughs> Victor B. Hamilton was the one that said that. I, yeah. Oh, okay. So they stripped it off of him, though. I'll take that and we'll deprive you of that. And they're what? They're going to throw him into the cistern. Verse 24, they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So now he's got no clothes. They've stripped him of his warmth, right? So his death by exposure is pretty much assured. And they cast him into a pit where there's no water. So death by thirst, you know, you're either going to die of exposure or die of thirst is the way it's looking, right? If they don't kill you outright. Now, by the way, the fact that this is empty, that there's no water in it, suggests that famine is coming, right? Remember Joseph's dream was about famine, all right? And it was all about going to go to Egypt and and save the world, basically, during the time of famine. All right, so it sounds like famine is coming, at least in this land where that, uh, or maybe it's just a hot summer. (laughs) All right. Um, In this situation, with this pit, I couldn't help but think of it as, uh, you ever seen The Princess Bride? Where Wesley, right? Wesley, the main character, he's he wakes up and he's being dabbed by, by this weird albino nurse guy or something. And Wesley looks around and he goes, where am I? <laughs> and the albino goes, the pit of despair. <laughs> and he goes, don't even think... <coughs> Don't even think of trying to escape. You know, the scene, he's in the pit of despair. And I couldn't help but think about that. This is Joseph's pit of despair here, that, where he's at right now. He's in a pit of despair. Verse 25. Somebody mind reading what the brothers do while Joseph's in the pit. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. 
Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Excellent. Thank you, Cindy. So what are the brothers doing? Right before the caravan shows up, they're eating. Right after they've thrown their brother in the pit, they decide to have lunch. Have you ever seen somebody eat food in a, in a situation that you thought, that I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could eat food in that situation. We did a tour of the coroner's office, and we're going through. There's dead bodies at the coroner's office. And, we're, and they just eat their lunch. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't imagine doing that, but they're comfortable with it. Here, the brothers are in a situation where I can't imagine enjoying my meal. They've thrown their brother into the pit. And he's probably yelling. We actually don't have any indication of what we're looking at here, of what Joseph is doing. So we're left to the imagination, except for one other passage in chapter 42, verse 21. Somebody might reading chapter 42, verse 21. It gives us a clue. It gives us an insight into what was happening down in the pit. Somebody might reading that. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear therefore the distress has come upon us excellent thank you mike so we have a clue from this chapter from this verse saying that he's in the pit pleading with them and they're eating lunch let me out please let me out they're going hey pass over some of that mutton (laughs) brothers okay the joke's over can you hand me back my robe Anybody got any cheese and grapes? I'm going to move for some cheese and grapes. You know, this, how, how bad is the situation with your brothers that they're eating and enjoying their food while you're suffering in the pit? Uh, we saw an episode of Duck Dynasty. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Duck Dynasty, and there's a crazy Uncle Sai. And in this particular episode, Sai, he's got this uh, shed that he's going to replace. So he replaces it with a cargo container, the type you see on the, like the big semi-trucks. He gets one of these big cargo containers as his new shed. And the brothers are all looking at it. And the youngest brother goes in and they lock him in. And while he's in there, he's going, come on, brothers, let me out. You know, Sai goes, hey, I got some cookies in the house. And they go get cookies and they're eating cookies right outside the door. And the brothers, the same situation. Hey, let me out. Let me out. Boy, these are really good cookies. And they're, they're teasing him. They're just like, hey, you know, we should have some cookies. So there he is. He's inside the pit. They're eating a meal outside. The irony of this situation is that there's coming a day when they're eating bread right now and he's deprived. He's going to be the one in charge of all the bread when they're deprived. When the famine hits and they go down to Egypt to get more grain. And Joseph is in charge of all the food. Joseph is going to be the one in the position with the food. And the brothers are going to be the ones, can we have some? Can you let us have some? It's going to be all turned around. By the way, when dad sends those brothers down to Egypt, dad says, and this is chapter 43, we'll get there eventually, but dad says, take some of the best of the land with you. And you know what some of the things that they take are? What we see in this verse 25, spices, balm, and myrrh. Spices, balm, and myrrh. I'm thinking when they sell Joseph, right? When the brothers sell Joseph and he's in this caravan going down to Egypt to be a slave. And the thoughts of my brothers just sold me to be a slave. And the whole way down to Egypt, you're smelling the spices and the myrrh and the balm. And I'm thinking when you get down to Egypt and you're in charge of the land and your dad sends your brothers to the land and and with gifts to try to get in your good favor. And they present to you the same smells that you remember when you were in the caravan as as a freshly sold slave. 
you know, probably think, uh, yeah, I, don't, I have bad associations with that smell. <laughs> that reminds me of what my brothers did to me. Oh, and who's bringing the gift? Oh, it's my brothers. Really? <laughs> kind of ironic the way that that works out. Verse 26, so Judah said to his brothers, hey, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So Judah's stepping forward. Now, this seems to be an early indication of the rise of Judah in the family, all right, and the role that Judah takes. And we just saw, what was it? The firstborn, Reuben, making a proposal, all right? So now there's two different proposals, right? Reuben says, hey, let's throw him in the pit and just leave him there. Judah's saying, hey, he's in the pit, but we can make some money out of this guy. Let's sell him to those traders we see coming along. So in verse 27, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. <laughs> and, and his brothers listened. That part about his brothers listened, that wasn't added to the verse that talked about Reuben's suggestion. It seems Reuben, though he's trying to get back in the grace and favor of his dad, and he's not, he's not succeeding, he's also not in a position where even the family, the brothers, are listening to him. So Reuben's status is kind of diminishing, and we're seeing Judah coming up. All right, Judah's the fourthborn. Also, this talk about his blood at the end of verse 26. What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? There was this idea, and we saw it first in the Cain and Abel story, where shed blood, all right, the innocent, when the innocent are killed, their blood cries out to God for vengeance. All right? I don't know how that works. I don't know how that, what that looks like. But in God's economy and the way that he handles things, he takes note of people that innocent are killed. And he makes it right. He hears that. That blood of sorts, all right, and I'm not saying he has eardrums, and I'm not saying the, the blood has a voice, all right, that it, that it speaks, but God takes notice of that kind of thing. And it goes all the way from the Cain and Abel story all the way to the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have the martyrs. The martyrs are killed, and their blood cries out for vengeance. Who are the martyrs? It's the followers of God. That could be us someday. If we're to die a martyr's death, if we're to die in our innocence, God would take note of that kind of thing. So here Judah seems to be concerned about his blood may be crying out. Uh, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Verse 27, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and our brothers listen to him. And verse 28, somebody mind reading that? Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. Here we have the mention of Midianites, but we also have the mention of Ishmaelites. The Midianites, they're actually descendants of one of the sons born to Abraham through Keturah. Keturah was a wife that Abraham married after Sarah. After Sarah died, he he married Keturah, and she ended up having who became, you know, the family line for the for the Midianites. And the Ishmaelites, you remember, that was Abraham's son through Hagar. So these are kind of closely related cousins of sorts, all right, to the people that we've got here. And then the twenty shekels of silver that was a typical price you would pay for a slave, all right. So in this case, they're going to sell him as a slave to these traders. They're going down to Egypt. Uh, history and, and archaeological evidence suggest that the slave trade was alive and well back then. And uh, so Joseph, the brothers are selling Joseph to be a slave. This is a violation of law. They're they're committing a violation by selling their brother. Uh, the Bible makes it a capital offense. At any rate, they pull him out of the pit. They pull him out of the pit. Other people that have been thrown into a pit, and uh, Jeremiah was thrown into a pit 
it was a miry, sloppy, muddy pit that he was thrown into. And kind of fun is uh, the psalmist talks about God lifting us up out of that mire, out of that mud. And so I see as the brothers lift up Joseph, so God lifts us up. God is able to lift us up out of our pit. Um, Seat of application right there. God is able to lift you out of your pits. The second one on your sheet right there. God is able to lift you out of your pit. What pit might you be in? Is it a pit of despair? The pit of despair, as we talked about earlier. Or is it a pit of something else? Is it a pit of addiction? Is it a pit of loneliness? A pit of guilt? A pit of feeling unforgiven? A pit of feeling lack or want? Or a pit of feeling insignificant? It could be a pit of anything. The devil wants to enslave you, keep you captive in your pit, and God is willing to lift you up. God can lift you out of your pit. That psalmist that I was talking about in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, the second verse there especially, he also brought me out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps, speaking of the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord lifted us up out of our pit of despair, not to sell us. He's given us a new song for our hearts to sing. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Genesis 50 verse 20 says this, when Joseph meets his brothers again and he reveals himself to them, he says regarding this act of selling him as a slave, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The brothers sold Joseph with no concern whatsoever of Joseph's future. He can die for all I care is basically their attitude. What they were doing there, they intended for evil. But God was able to take those intentions and take what came of it and turn it completely around and save many people. What would be the seat of application for that? It's the third one right here. God is able to take the harm that others inflict upon you and turn it around to produce much good. God is able to take the harm that others inflict upon you and turn it around to produce much good. We read that in the Bible and we go, yeah, I like that. That sounds really good. But do we believe it? When others intend to harm you, do you recognize that you serve a God who's able to turn that around for good? Now, it'd be a long, long time before Joseph would see that. So do we trust God in the interim or not? God would challenge us every day. Do you trust me? And when people intend to harm us and succeed, his brother succeeded, do we trust that God can make something good of that? Romans 8.28 is our New Testament version of that verse. And we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, not most things, all things. God is able to make all things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, verse 30, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Well, where were you, Reuben? (laughs) Victor P. Hamilton suggests that maybe Reuben, when they saw these traders coming along, he's the firstborn, right? They've got all these sheep. You know, those traders, they they engage in slave trading and all kinds of other stuff. They're on their way to Egypt to sell things. Uh, Let's get the sheep out of where they can reach them. So maybe Reuben, as the firstborn, recognizes that's important and takes the sheep and goes over to a field, maybe away from the road. And so he's separated while this transaction happens. And the brothers, then Judah, hmm, we can sell our brother. We can sell Joseph to these guys, take him to Egypt, sell him. Who cares? I don't care what happens to my brother Joseph. And then... 
Reuben's able to bring the sheep back and checks the sister, checks the well, checks in the pit, and there's nobody there. Oh, no, what am I going to do? Uh, to his credit for Reuben, he's the only brother that showed any kind of concern about Joseph's well-being and thinking of what, what's going to happen with Dad when we tell him. Verse 31. Somebody might read verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goat, and dipped the tunic in the blood. So they end up killing a goat, pouring its blood out, taking the robe, dipping the robe in the... In, and they probably... The robe's probably pretty well ripped now, too. Because I'm sure when they removed it from Joseph, they weren't careful. <laughs> I'm sure it was more of a, you know, give me that. And they dip it in the blood. Verse 32, then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he, this is Israel, this is Jacob, he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. The word for wild there, the Hebrew word is evil. An evil beast. Kind of interesting. An evil beast has devoured him. And then he goes so far as to say, without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. We know the story. He's been deceived. But he looks at it as if there isn't a doubt that his, his son is dead, his favorite son is dead. But he's being deceived. You know, that's kind of a poetic justice here. Kind of a, the deceiver is now being deceived. And you remember when he deceived his own dad, they had to kill an innocent animal to put that skin on his arms. Remember that? Yeah. And he used that innocent animal's life to basically deceive his dad. And now they used an innocent animal for the blood on the robe to take to dad to deceive dad. So the way he engaged in deceiving his dad is now being somewhat... Uh, yeah, what comes around goes around is a good way to put it. Uh, Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Our next seed of application there, we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Those are agricultural terms. It basically means you harvest what you planted. And in this case, you live a life of deceit, you're going to harvest deceit. Galatians 6, 8, the very next verse has a challenge for us. It basically says, For he who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We're encouraged by Paul, who writes to that letter to the Galatians, saying we're to, we're to plant in accordance with what the Spirit, of living a life in the Spirit. And from that, we will reap everlasting life. If you plant in accordance with your own selfishness, what are you going to reap from that? Corruption. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his clothes, just as his son's clothes were torn from him, right? The robe of many colors was torn. Now he's tearing his clothes. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. This was typical way that you would express grief in the Bible. You'd rip your clothes. And then we don't, we're not told how many days. We have other indications in Scripture. Uh, for example, at the death of Aaron, it was 30 days, 30 days of mourning for Moses. And then when Joseph passes away later on, it was 70 days of mourning. So... Um, many days could could be in that range or could be something much greater. Verse 35, and all his sons and all his daughters. Notice there's a plural there for daughters. We only know of one. Mm-hmm. We only know of Dinah. So some of the suggestions are, well, maybe it includes daughters-in-law. All right, so that's a possibility. All his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, for he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. And thus his father wept for him. So it sounds like dad sees no end in sight to the grieving that he's going to experience because of the death of his favorite son. That he thinks he's going to die before he's done grieving. This is also actually a statement that he expects to see his, his son sometime in the afterlife. All right? Because he's talking about 
for I shall go down in the grave to my son in mourning. Uh, he refused to be comforted. Uh, the word there for the grave is the word shoal. There's a lot we could say about that, but for lack of time, let me just say it's basically where you expect it in the Old Testament sense anyway, where dead people would go, where you would go after you die, a holding place, if you will. All right, um, It's not really well developed at that time. And then the final seat of application that we've got there, I'm sorry, it's the second to the last one. God brings us to our ultimate destination in peace after our death. What do I mean by that? Dad sent Joseph, Israel, Jacob sent Joseph to this place. Hey, go see if there's peace with your brothers. Go see if there's peace with the flocks. And Joseph arrives. You can imagine, oh boy, I'm sure glad to find you brothers. I've been looking all over for you. And right away, he's mistreated by his brothers. And there's no peace. He doesn't arrive in peace until later. The Bible actually says he arrives after his death. He gives instructions when he's in Egypt. When I die, take my bones up to that place and bury them there. And so it's not until after his death that he's able to arrive at his destination in peace, as it would be with us. We live in the turmoil of this life. It's in peace that we will arrive, for most of us, after our death. And then this one final thing I'd want to say is, Joseph foreshadows the Messiah. It's the last seat of application we've got there. A lot of times you'll hear people say, Oh, Joseph, he's a type of Christ. He's a type of the Messiah. What do they mean by that? Here's what they mean by that. The father sends his beloved son on a long journey with a goal, with a task, with a mission. And he he goes to his brethren, and instead of receiving a welcoming like we would expect, he's mistreated. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Joseph, but I'm also talking about Christ. See the parallel? The father sends his beloved son to his brethren, long journey with a mission. He gets there. You would expect a reception that's better than he gets. He's mistreated and there's intentions of killing. And then what ends up happening? He's met with animosity and uh, he's stripped of his clothes and the blood of an innocent animal shed. But glory to God, the story doesn't end there. The victim rises up victorious and he's now the hero, the savior, the deliverer to anybody that would come and kneel before him. That's true in the Joseph story, and it's true in the story of our Messiah. Joseph foreshadows the Messiah. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word provides for us so much in helping us to understand who you are and the nature and the character of of how you deal with us, and it also helps us to understand ourselves. We see, Lord, that the temptations, we see that the fleshly thinking, the bad intentions that we have, these have been... Uh, systemic and, and part of who we've been for millennia. We praise you, God, for your patience with us. We praise you for encouraging us to live in you with the strength that you provide. We thank you, God, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Jeff. You guys have a good week.